Well, welcome to Menlo Church. We're so glad you're joining us today. We're a church that believes that everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. So we hope you enjoyed today's message. Hi, my name's Steve Carter, and I'm a sinner. I, I really am. I, I'm, a, I'm a sinner. And when I think of that word in the original language in Hebrew, it, it literally means to live less than what you were intended. To live less than what God created and hoped for you. I grew up in Southern California in a small little town, and, and, and this town, it was a great place to grow up, but in many ways, the culture of that city, like the environment, it was almost like the air that I breathed, I was taught to achieve. And my identity was in my performance, and I had to win, and I had to achieve, and to kind of not ever let anybody see that there was anything ever wrong. So don't ask for help. Almost, if perception is reality, then curate the best image for other people. Make yourself the hero of the story. And don't let anybody ever get close to your flaws. And compete, compete, compete. Win at all costs. And I, I just was raised in this. I don't know if any of you were raised in this kind of air that you would just breathe, whether in your school or on your teams or in your neighborhood. Or, or, but you get older, and you kind of go through adolescence, you go to college, and, and you begin to make your faith your own, and you start reading the Gospels, and you begin to see what I was osmosively, that's not even a word, but taught contradicts with this. I remember when I was in college, a buddy of mine said, hey, do you want to run a 5K? And I said, no, who likes to run? And he goes, no, no, you don't understand. Our whole city goes out. We run thousands of people. We do this 5K. And then my parents, they, they take us, our whole family out for a nice steak dinner. And I talked to them. They would love for you to join. And I said, hey, you lost me at 5K, but you had me at free steak. I'm in. And so a couple weeks later, I drive down south. And I show up early, there's thousands of people out there. I see my friend, I see his family, introduce myself, and I, I should have known, I'm in the wrong spot. I'm wearing basketball shorts, everybody else is wearing very, very short shorts, and, and they're wearing shoes that I can't even pronounce, like Hulka and Sosony, and I, I, I don't even know what I'm doing here, and then I see some porta-potties over here, and I'm like, okay, maybe I should use that before the race, and I go in there, a few seconds later, come out, and I'm being immediately herded towards the front of the starting line, and I'm looking for my friend, I'm looking for the family, I can't find them, and, and I hear over the, the, the like speakers, the announcer going, all right, runners, here we go, five, four, three, two, one, go. And so I'm like, okay, we're all running, I'll find them at the finish line. And so like, I'm just running, and I'm running, 
And I feel like I've been running a long time, and what's really frustrating is that there's like a 70-something-year-old guy ahead of me, and it's bothering me, one, that he's winning, two, he's not even sweating, and three, it looks like he's having the time of his life. And so finally, I, like, I look at this guy, I go, hey, man, I feel like we've been running a long time. How much farther do we have to go? And he looks at his watch, he goes, oh, brother, we just hit the five-mile mark. We got 8.1 to go. And I said, I thought this was a 5K. And he goes, dude, you're in the wrong race. <laughs> and I literally like, was like, I have 8.1. My friend and his family punked me, and I'm running a half marathon. And I'm like, I'm not quitting, because I, 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 I was trained. You don't quit. You're going to compete. And I, I'm like, I'm finishing this race, and I look so terrible running this race that some nice woman who was wearing a fanny pack who had stuffed it with a peanut butter sandwich unzips the fanny pack and goes, would you like a peanut butter sandwich during the race? <laughs> Which is so bizarre, and yet I was really thankful. And like I eat this, and I finally, as I'm getting towards the finish line, I see my friend, and he's got that smirk on his face. And as I see the smirk, all I'm telling myself is do not sin out loud. Do not sin out loud. I get to the finish line, he looks at me and goes, dude, you ran the wrong race. And I'm like, I know I did. I can't feel my thighs. My adrenals are shot. I couldn't even enjoy the steak dinner. And if any of you have ever run a marathon or a half marathon that you didn't train for, uh, you know that when you wake up the next morning, it's hard to walk forwards. It hurts so bad. I literally was like doing like the poor man's moonwalk on the way, like walking. I get my journal, I get my Bible, and I just start writing. And I'm starting to reflect, like how did I run the wrong race? And I feel as if like God's spirit just says, you are running the wrong race. There's areas in your life where you have become so competitive, so prideful. These moments in your story where it's, it's about winning and, and being perceived in a certain way. And it's affecting your ability to live out the teachings of my son. And we're so humbling in this moment. And Paul, he's writing to this church in Philippi, a really wealthy upstart church. And he says to them in Philippians 2, chapter th verse three, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He's telling this church, I want you to make no decisions. Let there be no actions. May there be no choices, no words that come out of your mouth that are motivated by selfish ambition or vain conceit, pride, for you to have to kind of see someone as beneath you, as seeing yourself as having it all together. James the brother of Jesus, who spent his entire life watching Jesus live a fully surrendered, perfect life. He has some words about this. And in chapter three, verse 16, he says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So here's James saying, hey, where there's selfish ambition and where there's envy, this competition, this comparison with other people, there you find disorder. And when you hear this word disorder, it takes you back to Genesis chapter one, which simply says, in the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. And in Hebrew, that phrase is tohu vavohu, and it literally means it was chaos. It was without meaning. It was without purpose. But God speaks, and he forms and shapes the earth, and he gives it meaning and purpose. He brings order to the chaos. And we, as new creations, we, as Christ followers, every decision that we make ought to be one that's bringing order to the chaos. But when we allow selfish ambition, vain conceit, or envy, James is saying, you actually go backwards in the creation story. You begin to bring more disorder or chaos into your life and to the lives around you. And that disorder leads you to every kind of evil practice. And I like how C.S. Lewis defines evil. He simply just says it's co-opted good. It's good that's been manipulated. It's good that's been twisted and tainted for and bent to serve you. And so you have Paul saying, hey, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. You have James saying, hey, selfish ambition and envy, it's gonna lead you backwards in the creation story and it's gonna lead you into a pathway of evil. And friends, I don't think it's just me growing up in Southern California that wrestles with this. And I think that we have to understand that selfish ambition, vain conceit, and envy are the three threats to a flourishing life lived out in the way of Jesus. And I believe Paul addresses this. And he says this back in Philippians chapter two. He says, again, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but then he says, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So I love this. He's saying, hey, do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, pride, envy, but rather in humility, view others, value others, lift others up. Take on the same mindset as Christ. Don't view yourselves as better than others. Don't view yourselves in competition with, an, with another, but view their interests and help them advance. And I think this is hard for many of us because we've been taught compete. We've been taught achieve. We've been taught our identities and our performance. We've been taught see people as a threat. We've been taught if somebody else wins, then we can't win too. And envy, envy is really, really dangerous. The book of Proverbs says it will, it will rot your bones. You will have no structure because you fail to see what God has gifted and blessed you and all you can see is what somebody else has that you don't have. Envy is different from coveting because I can covet what my neighbor has, but envy is different from jealousy too. Because with biblical jealousy, I can't be jealous of what my neighbor has. Biblical jealousy says that I only can be jealous for what actually belongs to me. So my wife can be jealous for my time because I belong to her. God can be jealous for the hearts of his kids because we belong to him. 
I can't be jealous over my neighbor's stuff. I can covet it, and I also can be envious of it. See, envy works on the theory of limited good. It's really based on the economy of scarcity. And back in the ancient Near East, they believed that there was only so much good that the God or the gods would pour out on people. And so if someone was blessed with a marriage, if someone was blessed with kids, if someone was blessed financially, if someone was blessed in their business, they found themselves going, wow, if that person got that blessing, then there's less to go around for us. I don't know if you remember as a kid going out to your favorite breakfast place with your parents. And you're sitting at the table, you're looking at what you're gonna order, and all of a sudden the waiter or the waitress shows up and says, what would you like to drink? And you say, orange juice. I want a fresh cup of Florida pure orange juice. And you're excited because you're dreaming and believing that they're gonna bring you the biggest cup of orange juice. And then they show up with the smallest cup of orange juice. And you are literally realizing that there is no free refills and you're gonna have to ration this little cup of orange juice for the next 75 minutes. And truth be told, I think this is how many of us live in our view of God. We think that there's only a little bit of favor and a little bit of blessing and a little bit of anointing. If somebody else has it, then that means I can't get it. And what envy does is it forces us to see the blessing in another person and people started cursing under their breath. They started praying that someone would fall, someone would be hurt, someone would struggle so that the favor would be released back up in the atmosphere and hopefully I might get it. Envy is dangerous. And so Paul's writing and he says, hey, rather don't get seeing people as threats or competition or being envious. Take on the way of humility. Take on the mindset and perspective that Jesus had towards other people. And look what the scripture says, verse six, chapter two. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul's going, hey, just think about this for a second. Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father. He had every right to come to this earth and demand to be served. But Jesus, with all power, and his position as the son of God, look what Jesus does. He empties himself out. He doesn't use his title, his position to be used for something for his own advantage. He literally empties himself out and he takes on the form of a servant. He humbles himself. He lowers himself so that he is obedient to follow the mission that God has given to him, and he's even obedient to go to the cross, which lifts us up. And this is what Paul's saying. In a culture where it's so easy to be defined by what we have performed and done and allow ambition and pride and envy to seep in, Paul's saying, no, 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 there's another way, and it's called humility. And for Paul, humility is the antidote towards selfish ambition, pride, 
and envy. Now, if you think about this, in the ancient Near East, there were two types of clothes that people saw. One that people wanted to wear and one that nobody wanted to wear. The one that people wanted to wear was what they, rec- what they referred to as this shirt of honor. It's long sleeves, it was bright colored, you tie it in the back. And if you walked down the street wearing this, you knew that that person was a person of influence, a person of position, a person of status and power. They demanded your respect. And you hoped maybe someday I could earn enough, become enough, that I could maybe have that position of honor and be seen in a certain way. But there was another article of clothing that people didn't wanna wear. It's what servants wore. And it was the robe of humility. And remember Jesus in John chapter 13, he puts on that robe, he grabs a basin of water and a towel and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And really, we have to ask ourselves, what are we trying to get? More honor, more power, more position, more status? Or to really take on the perspective and the mindset of Jesus? Peter, he saw this up close. Peter watched how Jesus oriented his life. And Peter sees this, and later on, he writes about how the church ought to orient their life. And look what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says this, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. He's like, every one of you, don't clothe yourself in the honor But follow Jesus, clothe yourself in humility towards one another, looking to serve, looking to value others above yourselves, looking to lift people up, because that's what Jesus did. And if you ever want to know what team God is against, if you ever want to know who is God's Ohio State or Notre Dame, the scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble, to the teams like Michigan, you know, like good, integrous teams. Right? And so, so you gotta see this. If you, if you find yourself saying, you know what, I'm more prideful, you're gonna find yourself on the opposite side of God. Why? Because you don't need him. You don't need to follow the way of Jesus. You don't want anybody to see that you have a need for a Lord, a rabbi, a savior. And Peter's saying, hey, God opposes the proud, but he will show favor to the humble. And then verse six, so beautifully, he says, so humble yourselves. Therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. That's so beautiful. It's like when you choose to humble yourselves, you know what God's gonna do? God is gonna outstretch his mighty hand. And this takes you back to the Old Testament when God rescued the slaves in Egypt. He said, God's gonna lift you up in due time. He's gonna give you honor. And and friends, I'm, I'm here to tell you the axiom is true. Pride comes before the fall. But there's a kingdom axiom that's true. That humility comes before the honor. 
And when you humble yourself, and when you take on the way of Jesus, and when you take on the perspective and the mindset of Jesus, it will be the fresh antidote to the threat of selfish ambition, pride, and envy that will rob your soul and your life and your joy. And when you put on the way of humility, God is gonna bestow upon you favor and honor and lift you up. When I was in college, um, I, I went to Cal State Fullerton University. Um, we took a big fat L against Stanford last night in basketball. And I actually played basketball at Cal State. Well, I didn't really play. I sat at the bench, but I did get free shoes, which is cool. And I remember we had a basketball function, and so um, I needed to get a haircut. And so I went to Supercuts, and there was too long of a line. So I went to Great Clips, and there was too long of a line. And, and I remembered, I remembered in, in Fullerton, there was something called a salon. I'd never been to a salon before. I'd been to a saloon, but never to a salon. And I remember um, showing up to this salon, and I, uh, I, I said, hey, I just need a walk-up haircut. And the person looks at me and says, it's going to be $35, which in 1999 was a lot of money, and especially when the NCAA doesn't pay you, um, but that's another sermon. And, and so I said, hey, I, I can pay that right away. And he goes, uh, okay, can you fill this out? I said, oh, I'm not looking for a job. I just need a haircut. He goes, no, 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 no. Um, what we like to do is we love to know a little bit about you so our stylist knows what to talk to you about. I'm like, Southern California is so weird. And so like, I fill it out, turn it in, and I'm just sitting there six, seven minutes when all of a sudden someone comes from the Holy of Holies. They call me by name. They walk towards me and they say, Steve Carter. And this woman grabs my hand and she's got a firm grip and she looks at me eye to eye and she goes, here's what we're gonna do, Steve. We're gonna wash your hair. We're gonna cut your hair. We're gonna style your hair. You're gonna be good to go. And I'm like, this is incredible. And she goes, all you need to do is you need to go in this closet and you need to put on a schmock. I said, a what? A schmock. I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? She says, well, you're gonna go in there and you're gonna see one black schmock hanging up. So just take, take your shirt off, put on the black schmock and then just come out here and I'm gonna wash your hair. I'm gonna cut your hair. I'm gonna style your hair. You're gonna be good to go. And I'm like, this is amazing. And so like I walk in, there it is, one holy schmuck, and there it is. And so I take my shirt off and I put it on and it's, it's really tight. And it's kind of weird because the buttons are on the left-hand side and it only buttons to like right here. And I've got like nine chest hairs. And so I'm like, what am I supposed to do? And then the spirit of Chris Farley, Tommy Boy comes over me. And, and, and this place is the most bougie place I've ever been in. And I'm like, Let's just have some fun. And so I open the door and I'm like, fat man and a small man schmuck. And I just start dancing. And I'm trying to break the, the woman who led me to this closet. And she's looking at me and her eyes are so big. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm gonna break you. You're gonna laugh and I'm going for it. And then I look over here and the most adorable 70 something year old woman with curlers in her hair is looking at me through the mirror. Then she turns her chair and she screams out, what is this young man doing wearing my shirt? So <laughs> there, there are moments when you get humbled, right? And, and what's, what's, what's so crazy to me is what, what Peter is saying is this, hey, clothe yourselves in humility. Like you literally have to willfully choose this. 
You have to literally put this on in every conversation. You have to say, you know what? I might have a better education. I might actually know more in this conversation. I might have more position, more authority, more title, and I have every right to be served. And I could wear the shirt of honor. But so did Jesus. And in every conversation, Jesus put on this robe and said, hey, how can I lift you up? And how can I add value to your life? And how can I help you flourish? And how can I help you thrive? And that's what we're called to do. And here's the crazy thing, is many of us, I think we would say, man, I wanna be humble. I wanna be known as humble. Because humble's the great antidote to the threat of selfish ambition, pride, and envy. I wanna be like Jesus, so how do I do it? And you know how you do it? By serving one another. You can't just choose humility. You have to live humility. You have to decide that with your one and only life and with all the relationships and opportunities that God has put before you, that you are gonna say, I am going to put aside the shirt of honor and I'm gonna take on the mindset, perspective, and the way of Jesus and I'm gonna serve. And here's what I've come to find is the word humility in Latin is the word humus and it literally is like heaven's soil. It's what cultivates the heart and the fruit of the spirit. It's the right kind of soil. And pride, pride is hubris in Latin. It's like having a heart of stone and cement. And in every conversation, we bring these two articles of clothing, and in every conversation, we bring like a bag of soil and a bag of cement, and we have a decision. Am I gonna fight for honor and pride, or am I gonna live like Christ with a heart of heaven's soil taking on a robe to serve one another. And truth be told, when I travel the country right now and I, I, I get the chance to meet many different people from some incredible communities and churches, one of my favorite questions to ask someone is, tell me how you're serving. Because when you serve and you actually make yourself low to lift up middle school students or to value people in the parking lot or to serve people in some capacity in your local sector and city or to go overseas and actually help lift up another group of people, you're learning how to have the posture and mindset of Christ and through that you get shaped and formed into a person of humility. But if you don't wanna serve, the natural gravitational pull and bent will be to be someone who wants and needs always to be served. A person of ambition, pride, and envy. And it will lead you outside the way and mindset and perspective of Christ. A couple number of years ago, I took a buddy of mine, Corey, from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I took him to Chile. And my favorite poet's Chilean, Pablo Neruda. And uh, yeah, Chilean, there we go. Viva la Chile. And, um, and what's amazing about where Neruda lives is um, before he passed, he lived right on this amazing point. 
And he wrote some of the most romantic and deep and profound poems. And right outside his house is this just amazing break. And so um, I took six Chileans and Corey, myself, eight of us, and we went surfing, and we only had four boards and four wetsuits, and so we kind of divvied up in one group of four, and so I put the three best Chilean surfers and Corey, and I said, hey, Corey, you've got one job, and that's to stay with the three Chileans. They are professional surfers. Stay with them. They will take care of you, and just stay with them. Okay, I will. So he goes out there. I go in the van, and I'm just reading, and about 20 minutes go by. Another Chilean friend runs, opens up the van door, and he looks at me and goes, Mr. Steve, your friend Corey did not listen to you. I'm like, oh no, he's gonna die. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, it's not good. And then we go out there, and there's all of the surfers right here, perfect break. And then here's Corey way over here, and he's flailing. He's not even on his board. Waves are just crashing on him. And he's trying to get up on his board, and he's just like on his board, and then another wave, and the board goes flying, and he, and I'm like, he just got married six months ago. This is terrible. I'm trying to whistle to try and get my friends to see him and go save him, and I'm like out in the water, and, and I'm like, man, there's a current. I'm not sure I can get out there without a board, and I'm just trying to think, what would David Hasselhoff do? I don't know what, I don't know necessarily what to do in this moment. I'm like, man, what do I do? And then I hear Corey, and Corey's screaming, and you know what he's screaming? Por favor, por favor, and if you know Spanish, that means please. And so finally I whistle to my friend and, and he ends up seeing Corey and he brings him in and there's Corey just like a beached whale and I didn't have mercy in this moment and I'm like, dude, what were you screaming? And he's like, por favor. And I'm like, really? And he goes, that's the only Spanish I knew. <laughs> and the next day I'm like reflecting on that and I, I just thought it was so honest and human because sometimes we don't know what to say. And some of us, we've just drifted into the wrong race. Sometimes we've just drifted into ambition and pride and competition and the need to look perfect and like we have it all together when everybody knows we're, we're all a piece of work. I love Ruth Bell Graham's tombstone. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It just simply says, construction completed, thanks for your patience. It's powerful. And when you get to this point where you've just drifted and maybe the tides of culture and the tides of, of your choices and the tide of life, and you realize you just put on the wrong clothes, there comes a moment where you have an opportunity, a choice, an invitation to realign your life with the way of Jesus. And maybe Corey had it right. Maybe it's just a simple prayer that screams out, Por favor, please God, please bring me back to your son's mindset. What's powerful about the recovery movement is you just have this sense where someone just recognizes, I can't do it. I can't just do it. But what's so beautiful is in the scriptures, we learn God can. God can, and God wants to do this in you and through you. And so the simple short breath prayer for me has been, Lord, father me through this so that I can serve someone 
else, lifting them up, valuing them above me so that I can learn how to be humble like your son. If you wanna fight ambition, pride, and envy, humility is the way. And if you wanna live into humility, then you must choose to serve like Christ served. And when you do, watch out, because God's gonna use you. And pride comes before the fall, but man, the kingdom is so beautiful because humility comes before the honor, and God will bestow favor and blessing and honor upon those who orient their lives around the way of his son, Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this church. I pray for every person in this room. I pray that if they've drifted, there'd be this, this moment, maybe today, maybe this week, where they'd simply say, por favor, please God, I don't wanna run the wrong race. I wanna be like you. I wanna be like your son. God, I pray that every person in this room would be involved in some capacity to making their church, to making their city, or making this world better. You've gifted every one of these people with your unique gifts. Open their eyes, open their minds. Let them put on that servant's robe, that servant's apron. Let us be a, a church that models what it means to carry that basin and towel and lift and value others above ourselves. And when we do that, we're gonna reflect your son to the world. So show us, father us through this, and help us be people who are known for our humility. We give you the glory, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you. Well, thanks for tuning in today. We hope you were inspired by this message and can find a way to take these teachings into your week. And we'd love to see you again. If you want to find out more about our church and what's happening around the church, you can follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.